0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 this morning? Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we gather as your children. We follow you, however imperfectly that is. We trust in the Savior that was sent from heaven to earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Him we love and proclaim and we pray that during this time, this morning, that your Holy Spirit would refresh our enthusiasm for this day, this moment that we celebrate. And Father, we pray that some who don't know you would make that very important decision today. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps the most famous Christmas song ever written was the one written in 1816 on Christmas Eve by two gentlemen from Austria who wrote that famous song, Silent Night, Holy Night. All is calm. All is bright. But was it really a silent night? Was it really calm on that Christmas evening? Well, not according to the biblical record. According to the biblical record, it would seem that both earth and heaven were very noisy and very busy. First of all... Uh, Birth is anything but a silent night. There's a lot of commotion in any birth, right? There's doctors giving orders, nurses running around, there's a mother screaming, there's people in the hospital making sure you have all the right insurance forms. It's a very busy moment. Two thousand years ago, Jesus Christ came into a very noisy busy world. It was anything but silent. Now, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I encouraged at the end of one of our messages in the life of Paul the Apostle, I ask you to slow down during this season. And uh, I was thinking about that this week, and I don't know how much good really that message did (laughs) during this season. According to a New York Times study Thursday, they said, quote, everybody finds that their lives keep getting busier and busier, making it harder to carve out big chunks of time together as a family. And a recent study revealed that the average American will spend 30 to 40 hours a week in extra activities scheduled. Extra. Not work, not sleep. 30 to 40 hours in extra activities scheduled. I came across something. In the light of all this, this week. And it was an international student handbook from the University of Pennsylvania. Let me explain. This handbook is explaining to foreign students how Americans live and think. And I read through it and I thought, this is fascinating. I wanted to share a couple of quotes with you. Quote, Americans tend to organize their activities by means of schedules. As a result, they may seem hurried, running from one thing to the next, unable to relax and enjoy themselves. Americans also tend to believe that they should be doing something most of the time. You will often hear Americans talk about how busy they are, which is often true, but also is simply expected. To not be busy, since everyone is busy, may be considered rather strange. Now, I thought that was a fascinating description given by a university to foreign students who would come here to America and watch all of us, and that was, that was the preempting. Well, today what I'd like to do is show you how God can reveal himself in the midst of our not-so-silent lives, our busy schedule. Because after all, we are Americans, we do live here, we do live by schedules, we are busy, we are rarely silent. So how can God work and reveal himself in the midst of all of that? Your relationship with God may be a lot like a visit to Starbucks. Now I need to explain that one, don't I? (laughs) Starbucks is... An interesting concept, and coffee houses are, it's, it's a place where busy people gather together to be alone. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? You'll find people, it's busy, there's noise going on, but people have their computer alone or a book alone reading. They're all together, but they're alone. And, and so many times we find that in the midst of busyness, God will speak to us. I read a story about a man in a Paris cathedral. He walked in during the summer, busy tourist season. Tourists were moving in and out, making lots of noise, but he noticed one peasant woman dressed all in black, praying. That here she was in the midst of confusion and busyness and noise, spending time alone with God. Well, let's see what was going on in the world at that time, in Bethlehem at that time, in the stable on that evening, and in the hearts of the shepherds who would visit that. I want to suggest to you, and we'll look at it together, four not-so-silent activities that happened on that night. First of all, there were people traveling. In verse 1 of chapter 2 of Luke, we read, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Some of your translations say taxed. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed wife. Who was with child. The Caesar that is mentioned in verse 1 gave a very unusual order that turned all of the citizenry of that country, these countries, the world, suddenly into travelers. Now it says he gave this for the whole world. It's the inhabited world. Oikumene is the word. It means the Roman Empire. All of them should be registered. Who was it that gave this order? His name, Caesar Augustus. That's really a title. It's not his name, by the way. Caesar was the king. Uh, Augustus is an adjective that was given to him by the Roman Senate. His real name was Gaius Octavius, a remarkable leader, a renowned man. Called Augustus by the Roman Senate in 27. The year 27 BC. Why? Because he was such an apt leader. Augustus means the honored one. The august one. To be revered. Some say the name even means Caesar of the gods. And did you know this? That he was also given the title. The savior of the world. The savior of the world. It's still inscribed in stone. Well, this is the one that told the world to be taxed or to be registered. Now, the the registration or the census was for the purpose of getting money, tax money, to fund all of the uh, wonderful benefits of being in the Roman world. There was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, an enforced August peace that was kept through the entire civilized world. You had to pay for that. You got to pay for the soldiers, There were the Roman roads. They had a a road system unequal to any other ancient civilization connecting one part of the world to the other. You had to pay for that. And the way the Roman government figured you should pay for that is to be registered, a census be taken, and you would be given a bill, a flat tax, to pay for all of those benefits. I heard about a man who went on vacation down in Acapulco, Mexico. He didn't know a lot of Spanish, but he knew enough Spanish that when he heard a woman screaming, he knew that her child had swallowed a coin. So he quickly ran over, grabbed the boy by the heels, and started shaking him upside down until an American quarter fell out and hit the ground. The woman came and said to the man, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Boy, you knew just how to get that out of him. You must be a doctor. He said, no, ma'am, I work for the United States of America. I'm an agent for the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> Boy, he knew how to just get it out of him. And the Roman government knew just how to get money out of people. And because of that, the Jewish population hated the Roman government intensely. And so this census was taken. Notice in verse 3, Everyone was to go to his own city. Now that is probably not a Roman requirement. It is probably a Jewish stipulation. Let me explain. The Romans didn't care where you were when you paid the tax. They just wanted you to pay the tax. You could be in the city that you lived in. This seems rather to be a Jewish requirement for the land of Israel you know, that the Jews were big on keeping genealogical records. Because after the captivity, a lot of them lost what tribe they were from, and they wanted to keep intact as much as possible what city, what tribe you belong to. You know, that the Israelites came into the land and broke up in divisions of 12 tribes and different villages in those tribal allotments. So, to get you back to where you originally came from was important to them for the sake of registration. So Joseph and Mary went. They went, it says, from Nazareth. And and it uses an interesting term. They went up to Bethlehem. If you look at a map, uh, Nazareth is north, Bethlehem is south. We would say today they went down to Bethlehem. But the text says they went up. That's because they viewed life, not geographically, looking at a map, but topographically on their feet. The elevation of Bethlehem was higher than that of Nazareth. So when you walk up those hills, you are going up to Bethlehem, up to Jerusalem, because you're walking up some pretty steep terrain. So they went. A 90-mile trek for this young couple. And according to the ancient reckoning, people made about 20 miles a day in their travels, but Mary being very pregnant, she probably made at best 10 miles a day on the back of a donkey. So we say it took about a week or nine days from them to get to Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. Which, by the way, was all part of God's plan. You remember the prophecy in the book of Micah in the Old Testament, there's a prediction that says this, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will come forth to me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, Who going forth, have been from of old, from everlasting. So yeah, Caesar was the king on the throne, but God was the one in charge. How do you get a couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill that prophecy? You have a guy who thinks he's the savior of the world in Rome become like a pawn on God's chessboard to give out the order that the world should be taxed so that the Jewish population says, well, let's get everybody back to their city of origin. So the registration produced the fulfillment of this prophecy. The point is this. That whole countryside was anything but silent on that night. People were hurried, they were traveling, they were going from one place to the other. Every city, including Bethlehem, would have crowded streets. It was not a silent night. Years ago, I visited Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. In fact, I took some people from this church. We did a tour over Christmas in Israel. So, of course, we went to Bethlehem, just a few miles away from Jerusalem, on Christmas Eve. And you know, at first I was disappointed. I went to Manger Square, and it was so crowded. It was so noisy. There were so many people, and there were soldiers with guns. Nine-millimeter Uzis on top, just in case a riot would break out. And I thought, well, this ruins my whole Christmas thinking of silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Yeah, there's guys up there with Uzi's up there. The more I thought about it, however, I thought, really, that's what it was like. Those streets were noisy and crowded. And it was a perfect time in the midst of that busy season for God to reveal himself. You heard about the travel this week in Denver, Colorado. 4,700 people spent the night in the Denver airport. A couple nights, two, three nights, some of them. Over in London, Heathrow Airport, it was even worse. 315 flights were canceled in a single day, Thursday. People still trying to get back home. During times like that, busy travel seasons, I've discovered that God can reveal Himself to people. It's a perfect opportunity. I know it's an inconvenience, but it's a perfect opportunity often for God. Because people are out of the comfort zone of home, out of the comfort of their routine. They meet new people. There have been several occasions where... In traveling, I would sit next to someone. We'd strike up a conversation. I'll never forget the time we were flying overseas. And next to me on one side was this woman from Greece. And she asked what I was reading. And I said, a Bible. And she said, why? And I told her why. And by the end of the flight, before our wheels hit the ground, she prayed to receive Christ. That's a good opportunity doing it during a travel season. Or being in Israel when this gal from South America watched us baptize people in the Jordan River. And she said, hey, why are you doing that? And I told her what baptism meant. And finally, by the end of the conversation, she says, well, I want to do it now. And she prayed to receive Christ. And we baptized her, outfit and all, in the Jordan River. So it was a busy, noisy night because there were people traveling. Let's look at the next few verses we find another activity. That is, there is a woman laboring in verse 6. So it was that while they were there, there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We've all seen that sign at some point in our lives on a hotel. No vacancy. We're driving across country. Kids in the car. It's late. We're tired. No vacancy. We go, bummer. Now what? Try another hotel. No vacancy. What's much worse, when the couple, not in the car, but on the donkey, is very, very pregnant. You need a place now. Scholars believe that Joseph was probably between age 14 and 15, and Mary between age 12 and 13. I know that seems awfully young to us, and that's because it is. But that's when people would marry in those days. Now, the end that is mentioned in verse 7 this is not a holiday. By any stretch of the imagination, if you're picturing three stories, restaurant, swimming pool, think again. This is more like a, a campground, um, a homeless shelter. The, the real word, if you, if you dare do this, if you were to scratch out the word in in your Bible, you should write the word caravansary instead. A caravansary was where caravans stopped caravans of animals, travelers, camels, donkeys, horses. And so it was a building, and in the center of the structure was an open courtyard with rooms that bordered the entire structure. The rooms is where people slept. In the middle was the courtyard where animals were kept. That's the inn. And the inn was overcrowded. Why? Because there's a lot of people traveling. And plus there's Roman soldiers making sure this registration census is taken just right. So... The travelers were already packing it out. The soldiers would have their choice of room. Oh, and by the way, in these inns, you had to bring your own bedding. But there was no room even there. Now, Verse 7 is what I would call a classic understatement. And she brought forth her firstborn son. In all four Gospels... This is the most complete record we have of the actual birth of Jesus. And it's written here without a whole lot of information. Just she brought forth her firstborn son. Jesus Christ was born. No details are given. Though this child is unique among all children born, born of a virgin, God in human flesh, Yet the point to be made here in verse 7 is that it's like every other birth. Jesus was born. Well, what is a birth like? Uh, Let me just ask you this. The birth of your child, was it a silent time? Was all calm in that room? Hardly. If you've ever seen a birth. Now, for those who haven't, the uninitiated, let me just tell you that a birth has several stages. There's three stages, and stage one has early labor, active labor, and something interesting called transition. It's not silent. During early labor, there's contractions that get the body ready for the real contractions that come. Those early contractions may last from hours to days. That's early labor. Then there's active labor which lasts between three and four hours. Then there's that period called transition, where the contractions are every two to three minutes, there is sweating, there is yelling, there is flailing, there are altered states of consciousness. (laughs) Then the woman goes into stage two. Stage two can last from... A few minutes to a few hours. The baby crowns and the baby is birthed. And then stage three is the expulsion of the placenta, which takes from 10 to 30 minutes. All of this to say, that is not a silent night. It's painful. It's excruciating. It's noisy. It's loud. And yet, into this noisy, loud, frenzied, painful world steps the Son of God. Into time and space, God, through the normal birth process, appears confined to a body less than 10 pounds. No longer than 2 feet. God in human flesh. John Weyborg writes... There is God in the flesh, thriving in a placenta, protected by a water bag, bouncing on a donkey ride to Bethlehem where his folks had to meet the local IRS. No different than any baby born at the time, yet God deep in the flesh became God deep in the straw. Mary, the mother of the Creator, sustained the one who sustained all. Some of you find yourselves very busy this year. Some of you have had a lot of pain in the past year. Hardship. Some of you have had to travel, like the scenarios we're reading about here. And yet God steps into that kind of a setting to reveal Himself. He's not saying, no, 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 no. You have to wait for a silent night where everything is calm... You don't have to do that. In the midst of the frenzy and fury and busyness and pain, steps the Son of God. I love the hymn. We sing it here sometimes from the 1700s. One of the verses reads, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry until you're ready, you will never come at all. So, are you busy? Come. You frenzied? Great, come. Is life a little too noisy and loud and painful? Good, come. That's how it was then. There's a third activity I want you to notice the angels that were worshiping. Verse 8. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, that sounds like a silent night, that sounds like all is calm. All is dark at this point. But in a moment, whatever silent night they enjoyed will be interrupted. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a feeding trough, a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill, toward men. A few years ago, I had the experience of flying into Amman, Jordan. And as the plane was getting closer and closer to the ground, we were over Israel, because Jordan and Israel are connected. So I looked out, and since I've been there a number of times, I noticed exactly where I was. I could see Jerusalem, and right below me, from the aircraft window, I saw the little town of Bethlehem. And because it was wintertime, and it was around Christmas, and we're flying over Bethlehem, I thought, wow, I'm invading angelic airspace. (laughs) It dawned on me that I was in that very spot, somewhere up there, where the angels appeared to the shepherds and made this terrific announcement. Now, who are these mysterious creatures, these angels? They're in every nativity set. They're on top of Christmas trees all over our land. Who are they? They're mentioned a lot in the Bible. In 34 books of the Bible, 17 in the Old Testament, 17 in the New Testament, they all mention these creatures, angels. A total of... 268 times in scripture 103 mentions in the Old Testament 165 in the New Testament the word angel simply means a messenger and I don't want to do a whole theology on them I'll just say this what do they do? A couple of things they praise God in heaven and they do his bidding on earth so you might say they both worship God and work for God one activity is in heaven the other activity is on earth They worship and they work. Here, they announce. That's their work. They proclaim. They're like divine disc jockeys. They're calling the plays to these shepherds outside Bethlehem. But this is what I'd like you to notice in verse 10. It says, Then the angel said, mark that, said to them. So the angel is not singing. The angel... Is speaking. And then in verse 13, we read, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, a whole bunch of angels, praising God, and notice this, and saying. Now I'm emphasizing the word on purpose. I'm emphasizing that these angels are not singing, they are talking, they are speaking. And yet, another Famous Christmas carol. We sing it every year. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. It would be weird to say, Hark the herald angels speak. But they were doing that. There is not a record anywhere of these angels singing on that silent, holy, all is calm night. They were talking. In fact, I discovered something else. In all of the Bible... There are only two instances where angels are ever said to sing. Isn't that interesting? One reference is in Job and the other is in Revelation. The first reference is a cryptic reference that seems to refer to the creation of the world or just before the creation of the world. It's in Job 38 verse 7. I say it's cryptic because it reads... The morning stars sang together, and the sons of God, sometimes a term for angels, shouted for joy. Here's the second reference. It's in the book of Revelation. After the curse of the earth has been lifted and redemption is now totally complete, the four living creatures, four special angels, join with the 24 elders in heaven, and they sing a new song to the Lord. I ask you to mark that because we notice they sing before the fall and after the curse is removed. It was as though, in this interim period, they minister without song. They minister without song. It's as if they are restrained while the earth is under a curse. I'm bringing that out to make a couple of points. Point number one, whatever silent night there was, was interrupted by an angel showing up and then a whole bunch showing up saying this. Point number two, you're not an angel. I'm not an angel. We are redeemed human beings by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we ought to sing in our worship. Don't say, well, that's what the angels do. Oh, no, no, they're talking right now. They'll come a day when they sing. But we're the ones that are redeemed. They're not redeemed. You know what? I'd rather be a redeemed sinner than an unfallen angel. You know why? Because unfallen angels, those ones dwelling in heaven with God, the Bible says they look at us And they consider our salvation and they are eagerly desiring to look into these things. And maybe sometimes they look at us and thinking, they have been saved by the blood of Christ. Why don't they sing? There's an old Turkish proverb that says, as the music is, so are the people of the country. Your singing reflects your citizenship in heaven. So, whatever... Silent night there might be tonight, I'm going to ask you to break the silence and come prepared to sing loudly with all your heart. It's, it's like um, what a leader at a camp told me one time. He said, you know, if God's given you a beautiful voice, you ought to praise the Lord with that voice. And if God gave you a crummy voice, give it back to him. Let's look at the fourth and final activity on that not-so-silent night. Another not-so-silent activity is the shepherds are hurrying. Verse 15, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph the babe lying in a manger. Now, once these shepherds are stirred up, they add to the commotion. They're not going to sit in the fields and do nothing. They want to now go and see what these messengers told them. So, verse 16, it says, they came with haste. That means they were in a hurry. They ran. And then, uh, verse 16, they found Mary and Joseph and the babe. The word found means to find after a long search. So don't picture these shepherds lighting candles in some quiet place. They're they're excited. They're running around. This was a very active, busy, frenzied, exciting night. And God was very present. Something to think about as we draw this to a close. These shepherds are great examples for us. First of all, they received the message about Christ by faith. The second, they responded with immediate obedience. They, they went and, and checked it out as the angels told them. And the third thing they did is they ran to tell other people what they saw. You know, they didn't go check in and go, that was a cool Christmas Eve service tonight, wasn't it? The angels, what, what an effect that was. Good night. They told people what they had heard and what they saw. Now, there's a legend I read, and it is purely legend, but it's a legend of these shepherds. Forty years later, they get together and they discuss what happened on that night. They're much older, and now they have children and grandchildren. They're all sitting around a fire talking about that holy night. Most of the shepherds had gone to see it, but there were some shepherds around that hadn't gone. And one older shepherd was talking about that night and seeing the angels appear from heaven and hearing what they said and how incredible it was. And a little grandson said, Daddy, was it just like the angel said? He didn't answer. He just kept talking about that night and how wonderful it was and. Stories he had heard about Jesus, even stories of the resurrection. Daddy or granddaddy, was it true just as the angels had said? Because the grandson kept asking that question, the old man hung his head and he said, I don't know. I didn't go see myself. There's a lot of people just like that. They hear the story every year. They even know people whose lives have been changed during the year by Jesus Christ. They see it, they hear it, but they never check it out themselves. So that Christmas, for those people, are times that are busy and crazy and frenzied and expensive and not so silent, and that's it. No God in the midst of that. A woman was shopping at a large department store. She had her two kids with her. It was a long, hard, wearying experience for this young mother. Because her two kids wanted to see every toy on every shelf in that store. It took hours. And all she heard after they saw all these toys on every shelf is, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. Then the whole pressure of the Christmas season fell on her. She felt overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the pressure of having to go to every single Christmas party she was invited to. The pressure of making sure she got just the right gift for just the right people. Making sure that she sent out all the right Christmas cards to the right addresses and everyone included so she wouldn't offend anyone. She felt burdened and overwhelmed by that. Finally they got in an elevator to go down. The elevator was packed full of people. They pushed themselves in and finally this mother just said, you know what? Whoever started this Christmas stuff ought to be found, strung up, and shot. From the back of the elevator was a quiet voice that said, Don't worry, we already crucified him. The rest of the ride down the elevator, you could have heard a pin drop, though it was packed. Don't worry, we've already crucified him. If you don't let Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, come and invade your crazy, busy season, this is just going to be another crazy, busy, frenzied season with not a whole lot of meaning except, well, I saw some family members. You can have the gift that gives all year long in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know what he wants since it's his birthday, by the way? You know what he wants for his birthday? You. He wants you to give him your heart, your life. He wants you to say, I surrender my life to you. That's your birthday present, Jesus. My life is yours. I commit today, on this Christmas Eve, myself to you.